Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, we say that our mission here is to reorient everything around life of Christ. One of the very key ways we do that in the Anglican way is with time. We reorient our calendars around Christ. Last Sunday was the first Sunday of the new year. Cindy wished us Happy New Year last Sunday if you weren't here. Um, the church year begins in Advent. Why do we begin here? Well, we begin in the footsteps of Christ by actually preparing to welcome Christ on Christmas. So this is a season of anticipation, preparation for his arrival. Some years ago, I came across this story in, in the Atlantic that began this way. When people drop a cheesy pickup line and they ask, what's your story? Like a man who nicks his carteroid artery while shaving, they've accidentally hit upon something vital. We are fundamentally storied creatures, says the article. That's its thesis. Or in the Christian philosopher Alistair McIntyre's words, he says, we can only answer the question of what am I to do if we first answer the question of what story do I find myself apart? Because it's the stories we place that we live into that organize the disparate facts of our lives that we put into a cohesive narrative. Now, some of us tell ourselves good stories, others not so good. Well, this article in The Atlantic, it highlights the story of a 17-year-old girl named Josie. Josie grew up um, with a single mom. Her mom had a drug addiction and alcohol abuse, bipolar disorder, PTSD. She had a really hard upbringing. And so Josie, being a storied creature, places her pain into a narrative, and the article, article kind of traces it. Well, here, in Josie's own words, is what she says, this is the story that defines my life. She says, I am the only person that I can rely on in my life because I've tried to rely on other people, and I either get stabbed in the back or hurt or betrayed. So I really know that I am the only one I can trust. I rely on myself. Well, the article goes on to point out that people, including Josie, were kind of wired for hope or wired to find some sort of silver lining, some sort of kind of thread of redemption in our stories. Well, the article concludes very soberly. It says, well, some people like Josie simply can't find it, and so they give up. And this leads to this conclusion, this kind of dark conclusion, and I quote, there are things that happen to people that cannot be redeemed. In other words, there are stories that end without any redemption. And don't we feel that kind of to be true as we see the images from the Middle East today? We read about children's lives being lost, and we read about suffering and dying, or maybe just in our own lives as we think about the things we're dealing with, the darkness of the world, or chronic pain, or, or trauma, or violence, or grief, or loneliness, or just the daily grind that kind of wears us out. Well, Advent is an invitation to live into a different story, to remember that we live in a story where, where no one and nothing is beyond the redemption of Christ. I want to look at this idea through the lens of Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, that we just heard read. If you look carefully at this text, you'll see that over and over again, there's this theme of a voice crying or a herald speaking. And so I want to, I want to point out just four words or cries of comfort that the prophet offers us this morning in the midst of the darkness. The first begins in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So the first word of comfort doesn't seem very comforting, does it? Flesh is grass. 
It's passing. It's transient. It dies. How is this comforting? Well, to say, as I've just said, that no one and nothing is beyond redemption is not to deny the darkness. And that's where Advent begins. That's where we must begin. The world, we admit with Josie, is very broken. It's very dark. And Advent makes room for this pain. And this pain can, for some of you, be all the more poignant in the season where you're supposed to be cheerful about everything. Well, Advent calls us and invites us into a countercultural honesty. And when I say countercultural, I mean counter church cultural. Sometimes we're really hard on the culture. Let me be hard on the church culture for a minute. A culture of forced smiles, feigned perfection. We're all just shiny, happy people holding hands, right? Instead, Advent plants us in the honest oil of suffering, soil of suffering. And the song, one of the songs we sang this morning was particularly kind of somber. That's appropriate in Advent because we are a people marked by longing. We're grass. We're passing. We are made for Edenic peace, but we are exiled in a world of war. We're made for eternal joy, but we're exiled in a world of tears. We're made for life, but we're surrounded by death. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says, every year Advent begins in the dark. Because those who are actually most aware of the darkness are the ones who are most eager for the dawning of the light. So we don't have to run from the darkness. We can freely admit it. And Advent lets us do this. So if you find yourself there, not all of you are. Some of you are not in the darkness. But if you are, if you're suffering this morning, if you're grieving, if you're sowing in tears this Advent, if you're teetering on the brink of hopelessness, you're not doing it wrong. You are right where Advent makes space for you to be. And when the church laments, when you enter into that darkness, you join your cry to the cry of Christ, who, man of sorrows, he also wept in the face of sin and suffering. So it's appropriate for the church to weep and to grieve. But eventually, look at what comes next in Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 8, kindles this little flame of hope in the heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, we read, but what? The word of the, word of the Lord endures forever. So the word of the Lord, it's like a flint and tinder. It sparks a little fire in the soul to begin to warm it and brighten it. And this is the tension of Advent. It's the tension of the story we live in. Tish Warren puts it this way. She says, our moment in the story is one of waiting. We're waiting for redemption, for a wholeness that has not yet come, but it is still coming. It's just over the horizon. It's just beyond our grasp. It's rushing toward us minute by minute, day by day. That's our place in the story. So we can all relate to that, can't we, to Josie to some degree, that there's some darkness, and yet the story of Advent is that light is coming. Well, Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 40, they're kind of this hinge point in the gospel. They were written to God's people who were exiled in Babylon, living far from the comforts of home, far from the creature comforts of their culture, from the familiar food, familiar language, from their friends, from family. And the four words of comfort that Isaiah speaks here I want to say they're a little bit like a distant mountain range that he points to. He calls the eyes of the people off of their surroundings because when they look around, what do they see? Well, they're in Babylon. They see oppression. They see exile. But Isaiah says, comfort. Look up. Look at what's on the horizon. Off in the distance, you, you see those mountains? As sure as those mountains on the horizon are real, God's rescue is on the horizon. It's coming. You can trust in the word of the Lord. Well, 3,000 years later, we have a different vantage point, don't we? From Babylon, what did Israel do? They looked back to the Exodus, and they said, God was faithful then, 
Maybe he'll be faithful now. But now what do we do? We look back and we, we see the first coming of Christ. That mountain range that Isaiah had pointed out, well, it has come. It's here in the Messiah. And now we look forward to his second coming. But the reason that we dare to hope, even in the midst of the darkness, that God is going to keep his word is because he always have. Israel saw him act in the Exodus. Then he promised the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He promises to come again. He's going to. We'll take a look at verse 3, which drives this point home. The second cry of comfort. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up, every mountain made low. The uneven ground shall become a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, Jesus, being the word of God, arrives on the scene. We read the Gospel of Mark this morning. The first words of Mark's Gospel, what do they do? They quote Isaiah 40 here, don't they? John the Baptist heralds from the wilderness, he is this herald, what Isaiah had seen on the horizon, Christ, the promised Messiah, has come. And then the Gospel of John picks up the thread. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. Well, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So we look back on the ancient promise and we see that true his word, the glory of the Lord has indeed been revealed in Christ. This is like a surety. It, uh, we can trust that God keeps his promises. He always has. But this picture of, of level places and, and mountains being leveled and valleys being lifted up, it's, it's kind of like a picture of an ancient king's entourage coming in to, as a dignitary to a city. So preparing for this visit would have required careful tending to the roads around the city. So if trees had fallen over, they needed to be cleared. And if flooding had created ravines or brought boulders, they needed to be cleared so the entourage could come through into the city as scheduled. And that is precisely the picture of John the Baptist's call to repentance. As he preached the repentance of sin in the wilderness, he was preparing the, the roads of the heart to encounter God and his glory, the dignitary coming to the city. What does this mean for us today? The, you know, biblical prophecies tend to have layers to them. Um, so much like a marriage proposal, for example, is initially met, Lord willing, with a yes, and then an engagement ring. That's kind of like a partial fulfillment, but awaits a consummation in the vows and in the union. Isaiah's words, they've been partially fulfilled. Christ has come. John announced it. He's come 2,000 years ago, Christmas, but they also await a final consummation when Christ comes again in glory. And the invitation now is for us to prepare for that day. And that's kind of the countercultural theme of Advent. We are awaiting the second coming of Christ in glory. So how do we prepare? Well, the same way John said prepare for his first coming, repent. What do the roads of your heart look like? Are they tended? Are they cleared? Are they waiting to welcome him? Or are they full of debris? Are they obstructed? Are they buffeted against his words that are even coming to you now? You know, one of the ways most of us, I certainly buffet myself against recognizing the coming of Christ and his light is just distraction. This week's Christianity Today cover article asked and explored the question, if the star of Bethlehem, you know, that the Magi followed, if the star of Bethlehem appeared today, would we even notice it? Because, you know, so the roads being tended, we might say, or the light being so polluted we can't see it, we're just not prepared to encounter him. So the article goes on to say that 99% of Americans and Europeans live under a night sky obscured by light pollution. 
Because several centuries ago, John Adams and others, they had this theory that if we just light up our cities with artificial light, we'll be safe. He said, darkness is a haven for criminals and street lamps will chase away the villains. Ah, but there's a deeper darkness that street lamps can't address. But still, how much time do we spend now just basking in the artificial light of of all the things we make? Our screens, amusing ourselves to death. And if Christ's light is trying to shine on us, is is our heart just too full of artificial stuff? Are the roads too full of debris? Would we even recognize his voice? Could we even see his light dawning? And so perhaps the invitation of Advent is that. It's that um, maybe you need to spend some time, maybe I need to spend some time preparing to encounter the Lord this Advent by going into the darkness of prayer. And one of the reasons I think I and we often avoid prayer is because it's so quiet, because it's so dark, because in that space there's, there's no buffer, you know? There's no artificial light, there's no voices, just me and the Lord and my broken heart. But maybe that's the invitation is to go there and look for the light to make space for his light to dawn. Well, the third word of comfort Isaiah speaks finally sets our sights very clearly on the judgment of Christ's coming, another theme of Advent, which as a preacher is a little tricky. You know, we got Frosty the Snowman and marshmallows and hot chocolate, and then you come to church and you're like, judgment! And it's a little... So, but it is good news, and here's what we'll, we're going to see why. So take a look at verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. Now, his mighty arm, this theme is how God delivered, ex, delivered Israel through the sea by his mighty arm. So it's a, his judgment comes with deliverance. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. And those words mean basically payment. And the idea here is that sin requires payment. It's not good news, actually, yet. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those with young. So what we see here is that the judgment of God in verse 10 gives way to the compassion of God in verse 11. His mighty arm raised victorious judgment over God's people's enemies, then lowered in compassion towards his lambs who he gathers up. So is judgment a comfort? Well, I want to tell you a quick little story. Nathan, Nathan Budding. Sorry, Nathan, if you're out there. I can't imagine that you are watching this, but... You never know who tunes in. I get some random emails. Anyways, Nathan was the Pella Middle School bully. He was, he was twice the size of Peter, who is gentle and kind and mostly liked to play games on his calculator. Anyone? We, youth, we used to have games on our calculators. I know. <laughs> it's weird. But Nathan was often um, picking on Peter. And one particular day after gym class in the locker room, Nathan was beating Peter up. So what did we do? Well, we went to get Mr. Core, of course. Uh, and when Mr. Core arrived, judgment was very, very good news for Peter and not so good news for Nathan. Well, the theologian Miroslav Volf, I often quote, says that violence thrives in the world today because people no longer believe God is like Mr. Core. Well, I'm summarizing him. He says violence is nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb to birth the belief in a God who refuses to judge. He says, in a scorched land soaked in blood of the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. Because God's people, 
We can only be lambs and gentle and vulnerable and peaceable and peace-loving if God is a shepherd who protects. Lambs need his protection. They need his judgment. They need his vengeance. They need his defense of the defenseless, his recompense upon the oppressor, his pacifying of the predators. Otherwise, we lambs, we must take up the sword ourselves. We must become wolves. We must perpetuate the cycles of war and violence, kill or be killed, survival of the fittest that defines the world. But no, we have a judge who will set all things right, and justice will be done, not by our hand, by his. Judgment is a comfort if you are Peter, but not if you are Nathan. But now we have a problem. All of us have a little Nathan in us, don't we? A tendency to use other for our own ends, a tendency to exploit, a tendency to be selfish, to use others instead of serve others. And this is why, finally, we need this fourth word of comfort, this great word of comfort. It's, it's the gospel. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has ended, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now again, Israel, they first heard these words from Babylon as a promise to end their exile. If their exile was sort of like a jail sentence, well, their sentence has been served, the, the, the gate is open, they're free to go. While we, the children of Abraham by faith, on this side of the mountain of Messiah, who are not in exile in Babylon, we're in a different kind of exile, the exile of sin. This is why the gospel is often spoken of as, as a second exodus, there in the sin and slavery of Egypt, God delivers his people. Well, again, God has come to, to free us from the slavery of sin. So our jail sentence served, our hard service completed, our exile completed. It says, we have received the Lord's, from the Lord's hand double for all of our sins, only we haven't, have we? This is the gospel. While we were still sinners, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And Isaiah goes on several chapters later to add specificity to this promise beautifully in the words of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought you peace was on him. And by his wounds, you are healed. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray, like Nathan, you know. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so this Advent, yes, we hear John the, calls Baptist, John the Baptist call again to, to prepare the way of the Lord to repent because, yes, listen, you're beloved and forgiven, but if you actually want to be spiritually transformed into Christ's likeness, you're going to need to repent. You need to go to the darkness of prayer and let the light of his countenance shine upon you, to expose you, to hear his words, and to conform your life to them. And that's how we prepare the way of the Lord this Advent. Don't you want to be gathered up like a lamb in his arms? Don't you want to be led to the green pastures that the shepherd longs to lead you to? Repentance. Repent because Christ, the light of the world, we're going we're to celebrate this in Christmas. He was born into our darkness, and then what? He was bruised, and he was beaten. Why? So that you and I wouldn't be alone in the dark. Jesus says in John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So this is the Advent hope. Now, if you can relate to Josie, and I think many of you can, darkness sometimes around you, in you, done to you, 
Advent reminds us that we are in a story where we can look up onto the horizon and see a new day dawning. We can enter into the story of certain redemption, that there actually is nothing, no story that ends without redemption. It doesn't have to. That's the offer of Advent. Darkness, yes, but it's just the dark before the dawn. God's glory revealed in Christ at Christmas and will be revealed again. All sin forgiven and paid for, gathered like lambs into his loving arms. Now, as we live in the chapter of this story between the advents of Jesus, we are invited then to exercise hope. Hope in his return, faithfulness in the waiting. In the words of Augustine, you know, so many people today, just when they think about the end and Christ coming again, get get mired and just like when and how and what. And here's what Augustine says. He who loves the coming of the Lord, it's not he who affirms it is far off, nor does he who says it is near. It is he who, whether it be far off or near, awaits it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. We can only answer the question, what am I to do, if we answer a prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? You are a part of the Advent story. You're a part of the Advent story. The story is not one of self-reliance. The conclusion is not there are some things that are beyond redemption. Rather, it is a conclusion full of comfort. Comfort, O oh my people. And the word of the old Presbyterian catechism says it so beautifully. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the powers of darkness. Father, set us free from the powers of darkness this Advent. But as we confront the darkness in us and around, and around us, we know that our freedom comes by your light dawning. And so we wait for you, we hope for you, we make space to hear from you. Would you bring your words to us this Advent with, with gentle and sweet conviction so that we could repent and prepare the way for you? And most of all, would you remind us of the security we have along the way in your great love for us, which calls us ever deeper into your life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.